Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. I have said to you guys for um, probably the last year, because I would say six months, but it's always longer than I think, that I've told you that like never in my life, I can't escape the, the crushing weight of just the burden of life and ministry. I, I don't mean to say that to, to bring drama to the moment or uh, I, I just, I don't have a better way to say it and it, it won't let up. I'm so concerned about our children and children's children and what's happening in the world. I'm concerned um, Matter of fact, one of the, the reasons that I'm always so excited about a missions trip, and especially for our students, is that I believe to some extent geographical boundary, and by the way, this is from the book of Daniel, right? Geogra- geographical boundary on earth, that I, I believe that, that Scripture suggests to us that there are different principalities and powers assigned to those respective countries, regions, whatever. Now, you may say that sounds mystical. It certainly does sound mysterious, but it is nonetheless true. And as certainly as our children will fly across borders and cross into new places, will they experience culture and different things, they're also going to fly into new spiritual territory. And so my prayer for them every time, this has been, I don't know, 30 years, every time before a missions trip launches off, these words in some fashion will come out. Father, as they cross geographical boundaries and geopolitical boundaries, may they also cross their own spiritual boundaries into new places of conquest, into new moments. Father, may every one of them return with a testimony because here's what I know. In a world where every ideology is articulated, debated, and dialectically exchanged in greater detail than ever, Here's what I know. If our students and people can have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, a person with a testimony is never at the mercy of one with a theory. Our children will rise up and they may say, well, you can challenge the ideology. You can challenge this. You can challenge the nature of the existence of God and why there's evil if there is a loving God. You can challenge all of that. And you can, if you will, mess with my mind a little bit. But here's what I know. Like the blind man, I've had an encounter that your questions can't shake, can't change, or can't move. Our students, our children have to have that. They won't survive. They won't survive in this world without an encounter. I'm not talking about just another gathering of a class where we more greatly articulate the ideology of our Judeo-Christian heritage and Holy Scripture. I'm talking about our kids that have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, where they feel that encounter in the ways that I've heard it described all of my life and have experienced myself, that indescribable gripping warmth that seems to run down over you. And in the cases for many of us, so saturating and complete that there comes from our lips a language that we couldn't speak only a moment ago and we don't recognize. Our kids need to have that 
kind of encounter. And so we're going to pray as they cross geographical boundaries, and we're going to pray. They're going to be right here the week before they leave. May they venture into new spiritual testimonies and come home with their own testimony, with their own witness, with their own story to tell. They don't have to tell somebody else's. They'll have their own. Will you pray for that and believe for that with me? Will you? Okay, if you will, I just want, I'm, I'm setting you up. I want you to know. If you will, I want you to clap your hands and shout unto God for our kids right now. Come on. Hallelujah. If you clapped your hands and shouted, that was also an assent and agreement, an affirmation that you'll be present next Sunday night at the Hunger Banker. I'm just saying. Okay, that, that, that's all. That's a thus saith the Lord. Not really. Okay. In the Garden of Eden, you hear me talk about it a lot uh, because I think fundamentally we, we lose sight of it. But in the Garden of Eden is the only place that ever existed on the planet where mankind and God encountered one another without anything in between. An unadulterated encounter, mankind and God, on a daily basis, Scripture says. It says that the wind blew. That word used there for wind is the same one for spirit. And so many months ago, as a matter of fact, if you have a question about this phrase, spirit time, spirit time, email me, Tom at New Hope Online, Tom at newhopeonline.com. It's on the screen. Email me and say, I need the link and the notes on spirit time. Because there's a phrase there when it says that we heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In Genesis 3, that word cool is the word ruach, and it's originally translated uh, spirit, wind, blow, breath. Cool is the effect of what wind does. Well, as I spoke with a Hebrew uh, linguist and theologian two, two, three years ago, I have wrestled with it at great length, and I said, uh, I said, Dr. Martin, is there any reason that this couldn't be translated? We heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at spirit time. Phone went silent, and he goes, oh, Tom, ab oh, my, and just in incomplete sentences and fragments he spoke, and then he said, yes, absolutely. Beloved, we have to have those encounters still. We have to be a place of encounter and transformation. The good news is we can have those encounters, and God still wants to have those encounters with his people. Never changed his mind about that. That becomes the story of incarnation. But I believe what mankind discovered is they encountered God the Holy. Everybody say God the Holy. That word holy um, is a term that describes the moreness of God. The indescribability of the existential essence of divine being. There's no words we can adequately use to adequately describe him. No phrases, no songs, no conceptualizations. There's no test tubes we can reduce him to. There's nothing of the mechanisms of the finest halls of science that can ever reduce for us a measurable expression of God that is replicatable. He says over and over and over, I'll always be more than your highest thought, more than your best words, more than your best song. I'll always be more because I'm holy. I believe as mankind encountered God on that daily basis, they walked away more. They walked away with an increased capacity for him. After all, if God is always, if God is more, can you ever have all of him? And the answer is no. But what God does is increase our capacity for him, 
And in teaching many, many months ago, you heard me make reference to the concept of biblical transformation listed in 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 12. And I believe ultimately what transformation is, it doesn't reveal so much more of God to us as it does increase our capacity for that revelation to come through us. And he calls that being transformed from glory to glory, from image to image to the very likeness of God. So you have this moreness. Mankind is left on the last day of Eden still trying to find more every place other than it can be found. When they left the garden, they, they searched everywhere. The Old Testament is full of mankind trying to find more only to end up with less. Beings that were created to be more. Beloved, look at me. Every place you will ever search for human wholeness other than him always holds the deceptive hiss and temptation that this will be enough, but it's not only never enough, it's less, and you're left feeling less. The gospel is the story of Jesus encountering humans, mankind, person after person with less help than they needed, less wholeness, less sense of worth and identity. Person after person, he would encounter them and always expose them to the unimaginable that not only can your life stop being less, it'll, be, it'll not just be enough, you've just met the God who is more. And so when he says, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly, beloved, he's not talking about a checking account. That may happen, that may come, that's great. But what he's talking about is what the prophet would say, that in the latter days, that world is going to come into this temple, and they're going to bring their desires. They're going to gather with the people of the Lord. But as I preach several times, what happens is Haggai says, when the people of the world come here only to discover that our desires are just like theirs. It's a tragedy. Our desires must be more. We must speak and live of a wealth that can't be purchased with money, stuff, or followers on social media. We must speak of a God who has so enriched our soul that those things matter less and less and less and less. That's the God we need. That's the God of more. I'm speaking to someone this morning. Today I want to talk about greater than worship. We're going to begin now a series and emphasis on encountering the transforming and delivering power of the Holy Spirit that will finish on June 5th, which is Pentecost Sunday. On June 6th, actually on the day of June 5th, many of the students for worship and arts camp will be arriving. And I thought, man, what a beautiful leaping off point from Pentecost Sunday when Peter stood up and says, it's neither old or young or bond nor free nor male nor female. The Holy Spirit's going to fall on all of you and give you gifts like you can't even believe. And that week we'll be celebrating our students as we've reduced Acts 2 so often, you're never too young to dream, and, excuse me, never too old to dream and never too young to see. It's your old men will have dreams and your young men will have visions. Isn't that good news? Did you know that removes the primary sense of illegitimacy that we have? Because as we age, we don't feel legitimate because we're too old. When we're young, well, you're too young. And there's that sweet spot somewhere in the middle that happens one day during the summer. See, you don't ever get, you don't ever, anybody here ever had the realization, boy, I'm glad I'm not too young, and I'm sure glad I'm not too old. We don't know when it happens. All of a sudden, you've just spent a lifetime, well, I'm thinking too young, and all of a sudden, you have your next birthday, well, now I'm too old. 
Well, where was the sweet spot in the middle? You see, the adversary will do everything he can to steal the sweet spot. <clears throat> in John chapter 4, uh, verse 23 and 24, and this is, this is the foundational chapter, if you're new to New Hope, for worship and why we do what we do. <clears throat> it says, but an hour is coming, verse 23, Jesus is speaking to a woman who he's met here in the middle of the day. Um, uh, the, the story is fascinating. I'll tell you bits and pieces but this woman was certainly one that was feeling less, not more, not even feeling enough. This woman was looked down on. She had five husbands. The one she, guy she was living with now, she wasn't even married to. By the time you get to this uh, verse right here, uh, he says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship this Father in spirit and in truth. For such the fa- people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. Worshippers, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. The word truth, you've heard here for a decade, intensely, on and on, because we forget it. We think truth because it's used so much in culture, you know, like today's cry, speak truth to power, you know, bring social justice, speak truth to power. We have an idea that truth is the best assembled list of facts and citations, and if we have the most information that's correct, then we hold truth. But Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He didn't say the test of truth was rightness. He said the test of truth was freedom. Now, if every time you could look at, see the word truth in the New Testament especially, have fun with it, because the compound term literally means unhidden or not to hide or not latent. Truth is unhiddenness, beloved. Truth is me stepping out from the places that the adversary will tempt me to hide in every day of my life, and most often they're built on the echoes and deficiencies and voices of my past over and over again. Years later, John would write of people of the truth. First John chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. I'm taking it slightly out of the flow of the context. Because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Turn and say that to somebody. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Say it to somebody right now. They need to hear that. One chapter before, John picks up on this word. Okay, this is the same John, watch, that wrote the Gospel of John. We just read John chapter 4. This apostle is the same writer of the Gospel. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters, and he's also the writer, if you will, the human author of the book of Revelation. So I've always been fascinated. He's my favorite writer. His books are my favorite books in the New Testament. And so I've, it's been fascinating me, for me through the years to skip across them and see where phrases that are unique to John show up again and again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or uh, with tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's that word, unhiddenness. We will know by this that we are of the truth. Is it not wonderful to know that those who worship in spirit and truth... John says there comes a point where truth is your primary identifier. He didn't say you do truth. He said you have become people of the truth. People of the truth can be a bit weird. People of the truth can make you irritated at times. People of the truth are committed to living in unhiddenness. And so whenever they sense sense hiding going on, 
they are typically antagonistic towards the hiding. And I don't mean verbally, I mean just their presence. Please hear me, I'm going to testify right here. There have been more times throughout the years where I've been talking to people, they're wrestling with a problem, and I say something, I don't know anything about their problem, and they'll say something like, oh, who told you? I said, nobody, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Oh, and sort of then it's too late, now they have to talk about it. But if we will walk in truth and be people of the truth, I want to live every day of my life with increasing unhiddenness before God. That means appealing away of my own agenda, my own attitudes, my own issues that I'll hide behind. The voices and echoes of the past, previous failures, places that I haven't been enough, and so I feel less. Every place you feel less is your next hiding place. And God shows up. We will know this, verse 19, that we are of the truth and will, you see that word assure? That's the word persuade. And in other translations it shows, we will persuade our heart before him. Watch this, when we step up in truth, we begin the act of persuading our heart. Why? And what I'm gonna say to you is this statement, worship positions my heart to be persuaded. Say that back to me. Worship positions my heart to be persuaded. When I step out and become a person of the truth, acting in that truth, at that moment, I step up to the persuasion, to the convincing influence and presence of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Let's keep going. In whatever our heart condemns us, excuse me, let me back up. We will know this, that we are of the truth and will persuade our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. I'm going to have you talk to each other a lot this morning. Look at the person next to you and point your finger and say, whatever means whatever. Come on. Whatever your heart condemns you. Whatever. Whatever your heart condemns you. Now, this word for condemnation here doesn't come from the typical word for condemnation that we teach about a lot. This word actually means a self-knowledge. Weird term. But what happens when you have such, look at me, a, a knowledge of self, history, situations, failures, weaknesses, whatever it may be, that the voice that begins to rise is one that condemns me, that says, I, I, I know myself that well. Now, now why is that important? Because when he says, in whatever our heart condemns us, here comes the phrase, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. That's that Hebrews 4 word that you can boldly, we have boldness to approach the throne of God and obtain mercy and grace and in our time of need. We can boldly come. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep the com his commandments and do things pleasing in his sight. Jeremiah chapter 17 is often one of the most quoted and referred to, and it just says what it says right in our face. Verses 9 and 10, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The heart is deceptive above all else. We know the very first expression of evil in Scripture was deception. When mankind was asked what happened, they responded and said it was the serpent who deceived us, and then we were afraid, and so we hid. Deception. But it says here, our heart, even our heart, our own heart deceives us. You see, ultimately the deception of the heart, and we're going to land an end right here. Ultimately the deception of your heart, look at me please, this is so important, is coming to terms with who and what is greater. 35 years after this apostle John would hear Jesus tell the story of John 4. In other words, in John 4, Jesus ventures off the beaten path to a well in that sort of an out-of-the-way area outside of a city called Sychar. There's a woman there. There's Samaritans there. Samaritans were the half-breeds, ugly term, that were there during uh, when the the people of Israel were carried away uh, and hauled off into captivity for those hundreds of years. But these were a group of Jewish people who remained, and they intermarried with the marauders who came through. So when the people, the Jewish people, returned from captivity to build, the Samaritans were looked down upon extremely. Really an attitude. Really, if you talk, get real racism. But here, Jesus the Jew is going to meet, and she first words out of her mouth, what are you, a Jew and a man by implication, doing to talking to me to a Samaritan? They engage in this conversation. They engage in the conversation. He asks her for something to drink, and, and, and she says, what are you doing asking me for something to drink? And then these words come out of her mouth. John chapter 4, verse 12. You're not greater. You're not greater. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself. You see, the ultimate question of the soul is to determine whether all of my knowledge of me, my past, my experience, my legacy, everything that's flown down to me, at some point you're going to make a decision which voice is going to be greater, which opinion will be final in my life, which is going to be greater. Because the ultimate question that she's asking isn't even about him. She's echoing the pain of her own heart. A few verses later, she's going to admit and confess to Jesus that she's had five husbands and the guy she's living with right now, and that seems so unfair. But see, she's trapped with the echo of her own soul. And here's where I want to land. The the voices of our past, the voices of failure, can echo so profoundly and so completely I don't even need to have you raise hands. I've done enough of this for 40 years. That you've heard those voices enough, you don't even hear those voices anymore. The voice you hear is your own. You stand in front of the mirror in the morning and brush your teeth or shave or fix your hair or whatever you do, and that person you're looking at that's looking back at you in the mirror The problem isn't people out there. The voice is now in your heart where God says you've had these voices so long and so completely that it it isn't even the Cub Scout leader. And for those of you that don't know that part of my testimony, um, then just to throw that in that molested me when I was nine, it's not his voice anymore. It's my own. It's my own voice echoing what he's saying. But beloved, I don't care what failure failure you've had. 
in life stuff, ministry, walk, words, where you've messed up, where the own weakness of your flesh has been the most glaring, and the residue of that is not the echo of someone else's voice. You don't need anybody else's voice. I don't need any help condemning Tom. I do it well, well myself. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? But it's at that moment where God shows up with one of the words used in that worship narrative that says, I want to tell you what worship can do. Worship in spirit and in truth begins to unhide us. And I want to remind you that you are of the truth. You're not chasing it. Once you accepted Christ as Savior, this is that apostle writing. He says, you're not chasing it. You're of it. You are of the truth. And when you're of the truth, there's another opinion that will begin to rise in your heart. And even when the echo of your own soul wants to condemn you and say, I know you, looking in the mirror, I know you way too well. I know you won't do this. I know you can't do that. God says, even when my heart condemns me, God is greater than your heart. I love when the woman at the well, are you greater than our father Jacob? A couple verses later says, girl, if you had any idea who it was that's speaking to you and who you're talking to, oh my goodness. Standing on the edge of your life, beloved, today is that Savior. I came to tell somebody, I don't mean an unsaved person here. I came to tell a born-again person, a person who has accepted Christ as Savior, and you are of the truth. But that adversary echoes, those voices echoes, the remnant of the failure, the mistake, the mess up. You didn't achieve what you'd hoped to achieve, where you are in life right now. And it just goes on and on and on, and that voice is echoing in your soul. John says, come back to worship and don't waste the worship because when you worship, it postures you to receive an exposure to truth and unhiddenness you can't even imagine. And you will discover that there is a God whose power and influence is greater than the most devastating force you will encounter, and that is your own heart. Would you stand to your feet right now, please? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.